What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. Behind fear and lack of confidence, design projects are what I see hold entrepreneurs back the most. Luckily, 99designs can help. Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a $99 power pack of services free. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. We're number one. We're (sighs) number one. We're number one in education on iTunes. My dad the other day, I'm at dinner with him and he goes, it's kind of weird to say my son has the top educational podcast in the world. You're not that smart. Yeah, especially (laughs) when you see who's running the podcast. That's what he said to me. Thanks, dad. No, but the reason is because not only have we put in four years of hard work, but we've had incredible guests and we have amazing listeners. Thank you guys so much. You write in, you tell us, hey, change this or great job on this. And we're trying to adapt. And thanks to Simon Sinek, episode 149 got featured on the front page of iTunes. It was my unicorn. That was, I mean, really, man, he's such a good communicator. Yeah, it was a fantastic interview. It's ripe for inspiration if you need it. Speaking of being humble and milestones, we've also got episode 150 dropping this week. Chris, I don't know about you, but I honestly didn't think we were going to make it to 150, let alone 25. No, and it's embarrassing to go listen to any podcast before episode 50. Oh, yeah. If you're (laughs) a new listener and you're you're downloading the backlog, start at, mm, I'd say 50. Brene Brown. Well, we got Seth Godin and Tony Shea. We had good guests. We just didn't know what the hell we were doing. We didn't. We had terrible microphones, all kinds of just bad stuff. But now I like to think we've come a long way. Yeah, and actually this week's guest is just as amazing as last week's. This week, we're interviewing James Nestor, and his book is currently number three on the best nonfiction books of the year on Amazon. It is so much fun. The book is called Deep. We're going to dive into that here in a little bit. Nice pun. How many, oh, how many puns that. did you drop? No, I just reused dive in. I don't often. know, man. I think, I think you were writing. You were just waiting for that one <laughs> to come. Guys, as a reminder, we are giving away a Kindle Fire HDX 7-inch tablet and four Amazon gift cards. All you have to do is sign up for the newsletter. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. You'll see the newsletter sign up over on the right-hand bar at the bottom. Just sign up there. You're going to get amazing information and content in the newsletter and a chance to win an awesome tablet or some Amazon gift cards. Yeah, we're going to do a random number generator and pick some lucky winners out of our newsletter list. So head on over, sign up for that. 
So getting into our guest this week, as I mentioned, it is James Nestor. His recent book is called Deep, Free Diving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. James has written for Outside Magazine, Dwell Magazine, National Public Radio, New York Times, the list goes on and on. In general, he's just a fantastic writer as well as journalist. So I'm going to turn it over to James. Also, we have some books to give away. James was nice enough to send us a few copies of Deep. So if you like the show, head on over to Twitter and tweet to us at Smart People Pod. Mention James, which is at Mr. James Nestor. All those links are on smartpeoplepodcast.com. And we will send a few of you his newest book, Deep. Here it is, James Nestor. All right, James, thanks again so much for being on the show. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you for a number of reasons, one of which, and I, I figure we start here, is you know this is around episode 150, and almost everyone we talk to is an author, but in my mind, few are, are truly writers. And I believe after kind of learning about you, that is what you are at your core, and it's such an interesting craft. It's an art, and to make money doing it is, is a whole nother thing. So I was hoping you could kind of let us in on your ascent to stardom, if you will, with this fantastic new book and how writing came about in your life. Well, if stardom is sitting around in your backyard and flip-flops and old jeans uh, in a tiny office you built yourself, then it is. I, I'm gravely disappointed. That is in um, my mind. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, okay, I'm not complaining. It's a nice day out here. Uh, well, it took a really, really long time. This is going to sound super cliched, but that whole 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, I think is absolutely true, especially writing in this day and age, and especially in uh, this media uh, that I've chosen to to make my living in. Uh, I started off writing freelance articles for various magazines uh, while working a full-time job. I would do it on the weekends. I would do it at night. It's just something that I had always been fascinated with uh, interviewing interesting people, going into strange worlds, and then being able to remove yourself from that world and to write about it from an outsider's perspective. This is stuff I've kind of always done, been intensely curious about everything around me. And that just gave me an excuse to call people up and really get me out the door and to enter into some unique cultures and some unique things that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. So after doing that and working a full-time job and working freelance at the same time, I thought there's no way I'm ever going to be able to make a living at this. Uh, that's right when newspapers were starting to collapse, magazines were going away, uh, pay was getting cut, but I just kept doing it uh, just because I liked it. Um, I'd, I'd stay up very late at night working away on stories and then more stories came and then other magazines approached me and I started writing for them and finally about... I guess it was about six years ago, I finally just said, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it. Uh, I quit my job and just focused on writing. And it was extremely hard. I certainly didn't eat too well, but I had a, you know, a lot of free time to surf, so that helped. Um, and then uh, one thing led to another, and I uh, came across free diving, and I thought, this is it. And this is the book I want to do. And that's what I've done for the last two years. That was going to be a question I had, how long it took. But so many things about that interest me, and I know interest our listeners because we tend to come across similar things that our, our guests will say. For example, you mentioned how the 1% uh, versus 99%. In the same token, we hear a lot, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And it sounds very similar to what you were saying. That's, that's exactly right. And by no means am I saying some overnight success. I still have years and, and much more work to go before I ever reach something of that level. But but to get to the stage where I'm actually able to support myself and I'm happy in what I'm doing, uh, it takes a long, long, long time. And you have to really love to write and love to research or there's no point in doing it. I mean, if you're interested in making money, 
uh, and that's your sole interest. This is about the worst industry <laughs> to do that and become a stockbroker. You'll be yeah. a lot happier. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned you'd always been interested in writing. And, and I wonder if you could delve into that a little bit, because I think a lot of people, especially a lot of people that are listening to podcasts, consuming information, they're creatives. They want to do things like write, make music. So what is the difference between being interested in it and being so fascinated or just driven that you quit your job, you do it at nights and weekends, times when I like to play golf or play poker or something? I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine uh, who shall remain nameless. Uh, she had been going to writers' conferences for years. She has bought every book on how to write both nonfiction and fiction She's gone to screenplay writing classes. She's watched movies, documentaries. She has an entire library on this stuff. And when I talk to her and uh, I say, well, how's it going? They're like, what are you writing? She's like, oh, I haven't, haven't really written anything yet. I need to take another class. Uh, I think I need to move down to Los Angeles because that's where writers go. If you're going to write a screenplay, you need to go down to Los Angeles. And this has gone on for years and years and years. And I guess the moral of this little fable is that you're not going to get from point A to point B without sitting alone in your house for hundreds, even thousands of hours working away on this thing. There's just no other way of doing it. Uh, maybe a class will help you once you're further along or a book's going to help you, but it's just, you know, elbow grease. That's that's what it is. And it's and you have to really like that isolation and you have to really like uh the work that you're doing because again, it will not be worth it uh in the end. Um so I guess that's a long way of saying um you know, this is this is something that takes a while and the only way to do it is to do it. Absolutely. And again, sound advice that I think you know, people know, but oftentimes they write it off, write it off, if you will. There's another bad pun for you. Yeah. <laughs> the, There's the... going to be a lot of those when it comes into play, by the way. Just a heads up. I love it. The last question on this topic, I think I have until one other one pops up, is just, so the book we're talking about is deep, and we're going to get into that and its success thus far in the short time it's been out. But what does success in terms of writing and being able to make a career out of it, what does that look like? Is it a is it a book advance? Is that what allowed you to move into this completely? At the beginning, success to me looked like not having to go into a regular job and to hang out by a water cooler and you know eat entomins at someone's birthday party you don't know. I said as long as I'm not doing that. I'm going to be successful. And if I got just enough money to get by and to pay my mortgage here on the house, then uh, then I'm going to be okay. So once I did that, I said, wow, I've made it. I can, I can do this for a living. I'm not making hardly any money, but it's enough money to get by. And I'm totally happy doing this. But as things progressed and as I started getting larger magazine stories and started getting paid a little more, I was like, wow, I might be able to afford these things called like cheese and <laughs> shoes after a while. And then when the book came about, uh, everything happened suddenly and it, it just struck me out of the blue. I was on assignment for Outside Magazine. They sent me out in 2011 in September to check out something called the World Freediving Championships. And we'll get into that, I know, in the next segment, but I'll just use this little story as a, as a lead into it. So after that assignment, uh, I mean, I just said, wow, I, I found something. It's the book. The proposal came together in about four weeks, which for a proposal is, is nothing. Uh, it was about 60 pages long. The first night we sent out the proposal, um, I had one of the best editors in um, in book publishing on the phone, and he said, I want this book. So it completely blew me away. Um, and then you get an advance, and that advance pays for that year of travel, research, and writing. Then you get another advance once the book is done, and on and on. So it supports you. If you get the right deal, it supports you for a few years. And uh, I got the right deal, and uh, I'm ecstatic about it. Uh, but it also makes you, <laughs> you accept a deal like that, you have to hit an impossible deadline. And that's what almost killed me, mm. um, is, is, you know, you're, you're working under their terms, and you have another boss, even though it's in a world you, you love to be in. 
Um, and that's why this book was turned around so quickly. I wish I had another year. I didn't because they're the ones holding the purse strings. So, you know, it's so interesting is when you say hey, turned around so quickly, I wish I had another year. It was two years in the making in most things in life. That's an extremely long time. I mean, think about movies, for example, and their budgets and how quickly they turn those things around. And in a book, you're talking about something that somebody might be able to consume in a few hours. It's just paper and words. You know, it's, it's when you look at it for exactly or technically, or I guess literally what it is, you can't imagine the time and effort. But then for you to say two hours is quick, it's mind blowing. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's, it's funny because I, if I had picked another subject, my life would have been much simpler in the last couple of years. Uh, I got the contract for the book in March of 2012 and they wanted a year turnaround if anyone out there has been under book contract you usually get about three years most writers take three to five years to write a nonfiction book i was stupid enough to say hey i'm gonna write a book about the entire ocean it starts from the surface ends at the deepest trench uh of the deepest ocean and um so i had to research 10 different uh, disciplines, 10 different people go to 10 different countries. It was essentially 10 different books crammed into one. Now, I think you can do that in about five years pretty easily, but doing that in one year was uh, insane. I'm not complaining. It was an amazing experience. Um, but but yeah, I, I don't think people realize just how much, you, you know, the fact of the matter is 98% of the research you are not seeing in that book. What you get is the supposed to be the creme de la creme of of what's left, you know, the really honed prose. But um, you're not looking at the other, you know, 400 books I had to read to to get to those those passages. I gotcha. And I love that you said that because oftentimes readers, the general public, don't ever see that, understand that, know that. And it goes back to the you have to put the work in to create it. Oftentimes we read it, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but usually I, I represent the voice of many. We read it and we go, oh, well, like this is well-researched and it's great, but it was probably a couple Google searches, some Wikipedia articles, and some fancy writing, and then you were diving around or whatever you were doing. But that's not at all the case. To me, you can, you can always uh, spot out articles and books where the author has done that. Uh, when it's been a very sort of superficial research. And that stuff drives me crazy. I mean, you have to cull through literally thousands and tens of thousands of pages to find the interesting stuff that people haven't heard a zillion times before. You know, it wasn't until six months into reading through books that I found ancient reports of sailors uh, seeing people free dive for 15 minutes at a time. And uh, I hadn't read this anywhere else. So then you're on the phone with, you know, the University of Cambridge trying to find these reports. And it goes on and on to find one little fact in that book can take about four days of research. So it's it's a pretty crazy process. And it, it also explains why so few people really, really want to enter into the world of nonfiction science writing. It's yeah. It can become a slippery slope, but I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. It's actually one of the only genres I read, which is, and we can get into it, how I found your book. But uh, last question on that is, what were you doing prior to or alongside writing? And kind of how did your path evolve? Because a lot of people have this passion my thing that I kind of try to work with them on, I do coaching on the side with career and all that, is to build a bridge as opposed to the, I believe, old wisdom, which was jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. I actually think that's more harmful. But so kind of the bridge, which you did writing at night, writing on the weekends, what was your other life? Well, I study, I got a pretty useless degree in English in college, like, like many of us have. And so, you know, coming out of the gate, I knew about things like new colonialism, but I didn't know how to function in the, in the business world, uh, which, which just didn't uh, go so well. So I, I took up uh, just copywriting jobs. I did a lot of copywriting, did a lot of ad writing, um, did some copy editing. I mean, that was my only real use uh, to find uh, a way of, of paying my way is is to correct people's English, which can get 
pretty annoying at, at times, but, uh, you know, it was something I was pretty good at and, and I liked it to a certain degree. But again, you're, you're writing about stuff you don't care about. You're writing advertising copy that uh, was pretty soulless and oftentimes completely false and, and lying. And, uh, and it just kind of got to me after a while. It's like, if I'm going to spend all this time really honing my craft, I want to do it in a world uh, that might mean something to someone else. It might be a mutual benefit to both me learning about this stuff and other people who read it. And um, that feedback is the most important and just makes it all worthwhile when someone really responds or is affected by something you wrote. And that's when I know I've, I've found the right, right uh, job. Perfect. Now we can get into deep. And what I was going to say is the way I found it is oftentimes I, I just look for books on Amazon and I'll search nonfiction. And your book as of, I think it was yesterday was the last time I checked, but is number four on Amazon's best nonfiction of 2014, which is... I had no idea. Are you wow. serious? I had no... The, the publicist doesn't tell me this stuff. That's oh another my thing. God. Authors beware. You can be in all these newspapers. You won't know about it until your mom calls you. So. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's that's how I found you. That's how I find a lot of the books. Number two was actually Dr. Michio Kaku, who writes on space and all that. And we had interviewed him not too long ago. Oftentimes, it's people I want to read, people I want to talk to. So the the subject, and again, the whole title is Deep Free Diving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. I mean, that's got to be interesting to anyone. So... That's where I came across you, and now I want to dive into it. Like, give us the background on this book. Great job putting in that pun. I was waiting for it. <laughs> I can't help it. We, we, be, we actually say that in a lot of episodes. I think it's just a common analogy, so it works in this case. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, I'm, and uh, now I completely forgot your question. You're asking how, how the book came about? Yeah, or, yeah. Or? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, you were talking about, and I know a little bit more, but for our listeners, you were on assignment and, and what came about. Right. Okay. So uh, I was out at uh, assignment in Greece watching this, this, these competitive free divers. And um, now this is a very weird sport. It's when people bet each other to see how deep they can dive on a single breath and come back conscious. Uh, it turned out that many of these divers could not come back conscious. They were pushing too far. So I was completely amazed that the human body, on a single breath of air, can dive down 300 feet. Um, and we have all these reflexes within us that allow us to do this. But I was also pretty disgusted um, that these people were using this amazing mammalian dive reflex for competition, for bragging rights, to, you know, best the other guy next to them and they were just coming up uh, with blood running down their faces and one guy was in cardiac arrest and the whole thing just looked insane it looked like you know what you would imagine like a competitive yoga would look like <laughs> and and that to me looks pretty bad well that's what free diving looked like to me as well but there was something about it, uh, that connection to the ocean these guys had, the ability to hold your breath for four minutes and dive that deep, that really stuck with me. And I was lucky enough to meet a number of more philosophical freedivers at the competition who didn't dive for, you know, to beat the other guy, but they dive because it was the most intimate and direct way to connect with the ocean. For that three minutes underwater, uh, we resemble only uh, a passing resemblance to our terrestrial selves. And uh, it's a way of just blocking out the rest of the stress of the world and going down literally into a different universe uh, with completely different rules. And that was the part of freediving that absolutely blew me away. And, and just to continue a little bit longer, uh, what I discovered is people were using this freediving um, both uh, to explore their own bodies, but also to explore marine mammals. They can, you can only really study these animals if you free dive. Scuba's too loud, submarines are too loud, and these guys are, are getting more research done with these animals and our connection to them than anyone else before. You took a question away from me that blows my mind. I was wondering why the hell not just scuba dive? That, that's exactly why. Um, because scuba uh, freediving instructor uh, actually told this to me uh, early on. He said, scuba diving 
in the ocean is like going bird watching with a leaf blower on the back. <laughs> you are you are com- you're not only disruptive, but you are a menace to everything around you. Now, I've done a ton of scuba in the past. I'm an advanced diver. I absolutely love it. However, when you're studying animals, if you want to connect with the ocean life down there, free diving is the way to go. Instead of animals getting scared and turning away from you, when you're free diving, you're silent. The animals accept you as part of their environment. They allow you into their pods. They surround you. And this sounds like some new age dream, but it's true. They start trying to communicate with you with their signature whistles and with their click communication. And uh, this is proven stuff. This isn't just something like I dreamed up. But uh, these animals communicate in these very specific ways when you're free diving with them. It's a complete paradigm shift. Everything, everything changes. And um, once you do it, you'll be hooked for life. So these people are using this free diving to, again, to get closer to these animals, to study them closer than anyone else before them. And what they're learning is just mind blowing. And that's that's most of what the book is about. Yeah, I mean, it it comes across in the book, too. It's one of those things. I think that's one of the reasons why the book's so successful is when you read it, you want to be there. I mean, you're you're transported there. But when you kind of leave and say, close the book up, you go, okay, how do I do this? And I'm telling you right now, in some capacity, I'm going to do it further. I mean, I was I was telling you before I hit the record button. I just got back from my honeymoon. We were in the Caribbean and we did a, a, a snorkeling trip, a little cruise thing. And I have my scuba certification as well. I've done it a few times. It's completely mind-blowing and just otherworldly. But my my now wife, she doesn't scuba. So we were doing um, snorkeling, and I would dive down as far as I could go, which is probably, I don't know, 10 feet, 15 feet. I don't know. I'd be exhausted out of breath. But for the five seconds that I was down there, just in a school of fish or whatever it is. It's a different universe. And I just, I want to know how does that feel to be down there? Yeah, it's, it's pretty disarming at the beginning. I'll explain some very quick physics of water. What happens the deeper you go down, the more air contracts. And so instead of at altitude, when imagine you have like a bag of chips and you take that bag of chips with you on an airplane or up to the mountains, that bag of chips is going to puff up. If you take that same bag of chips and push it in to the water, it's going to collapse upon itself. The same thing happens with human lungs. Human lungs shrink to half their size at 30 feet, a third of their size at 66 feet, a quarter of their size at 99 feet, and so on. I know that sounds painful. It's not, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, But what I'm trying to get to is the deeper you go down, the less buoyancy you have. So everyone's been in a swimming pool and you swim down, you really have to struggle and you have to kick your arms and kick your legs to stay down at the bottom of the swimming pool. Everything changes at around 25 feet, 25, 30 feet, where your buoyancy starts reversing. At around 25 to 30 feet, you it's basically a zero gravity zone. You're at zero buoyancy. Neutral buoyancy is what they call it. Right past that is what freedivers call the doorway to the deep, where buoyancy reverses. You no longer have to swim. The ocean takes you down further and further, and you don't have to exert any effort. So one of my favorite things to do when I'm freediving is go down to that zone, that doorway to the deep where everything reverses, and to lie on the seafloor because you're not going to be buoyed up to the surface because everything's reversed. You're held down to the seafloor, and you can just sit there, and instead of fish going away and going into the other direction from you, they start approaching you and they circle you and they allow you into their their zone and you're you're a part of the environment uh, you're no longer a menace you're no longer an outsider looking in you're another marine mammal down there and that shift will never get old and uh, that's something that uh, you know I just look forward to doing over and over again and now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support smart people podcast Are you dreaming about the perfect logo or website design but don't know how to get started? Worried about your budget? 99designs can help. 99designs, the world's largest graphic design marketplace, makes it easy to get a design you love. Just go to the website, tell them about the design you need, and pick a price package that works for you. Then the fun really begins. Designers from around the globe will submit awesome designs and you'll give them feedback. 
Within a week, you'll pick your favorite and be the proud owner of a gorgeous new design. With thousands of designers at your fingertips, there's no limit to what you can get designed. As a matter of fact, Chris and I are currently using 99designs to put together a design contest and have an awesome t-shirt and sticker created. More details on that to come. So what is it that you need? Boost your brand's visibility with a t-shirt or drive more traffic with a sleek new banner ad or landing page. Projects start at just $199 and your happiness is always 100% guaranteed. Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a $99 power pack of services free. That's 99designs.com slash smart. Guys, we want to share with you a free and secure tool called Personal Capital that solves two barriers to growing your wealth. The first barrier is that it's hard to keep track of stocks, 401k, bank accounts, savings accounts, all the accounts, all on different sites with different usernames and passwords. Second, you pay someone to manage it and you're probably paying too much. Personal Capital brings all your accounts and assets on one single screen on your computer, phone, or tablet with real-time and intuitive graphs. It shows how much you're overpaying in fees and how to reduce those fees. You also get tailored advice on optimizing your investment. So why wait? Signing up takes just a minute and it'll pay big dividends. Personal Capital gives you total clarity and transparency to make better investment decisions right away. And it's free. To set up your free account, go to personalcapital.com slash smart people. Personal Capital is free and the smart way to grow your money. But you must go to personalcapital.com slash smart people for your free account. I can't. I, I, if you're listening to this and not just mind blown, I, I don't understand it because, well, I'll, we'll get into it because I want to know how to do that. But the first thing, obviously, I think it's a natural human response is what about the fear? Like the ocean is a scary place. There are things that eat you, kill you, sting you, stab you, poison you. Like, how do you deal with that? Not when you, I know this sounds pretty new agey in California, but not when you approach these animals in peace. Uh, when you approach a shark, the predators don't cruise up to them and stare them in the face and stand there, okay? Their, uh, their prey sits at the surface paddling around on a boogie board. That's when people get picked off. They don't get picked off when you're going down in them, approaching them in peace, facing them face to face. I've seen this happen. I've done this. So uh, it sounds really scary uh, because it is at the beginning. Uh, something, and this is something I write about in the book, is to be, I was so entranced by free diving, so mystified by these guys diving 300 feet. You know, some free divers can hold their breath for 12 minutes at a time. However, every time I tried to do it, those images of competitive divers coming up with like blood on their faces or in mm -hmm. cardiac arrest kept popping up in my brain. And it took me months and months and months to get those negative images of people competing in this discipline and replace them with the images of people swimming with whales or swimming with dolphins or sitting on the seafloor. And, and accepting this practice is, is almost like a yogic practice, uh, you know, something that's uh, almost like a spiritual thing, a meditation. And once I was able to get that into my mind, that this thing isn't about competition, it's not always about looking at your dive watch and seeing how deep you can go or how long you can hold your breath. But it's just about being down there and experiencing a different world. Um, once I was able to get that into my head, uh, I was able to go deep. And, um, and that's when everything really changed for me. So let's talk about two things on this subject. The first, which you cover in your book, it's fascinating. It's the science of it. I want to know kind of the physiological aspects of free diving you know, sure, at 300 feet, um, it's crazy, but even the 30, the 50, because when I think about it, my sinuses feel like they're going to implode. <laughs> you know, I, as you mentioned, you're fighting the buoyancy. I get worried. I know you can't rise back up to the surface too fast. So what, what did you learn about the physiological aspects of it? All that is wrong, by the way. And I'll, I'll explain <laughs> Good. I mean, <laughs> um, we're literally born to free dive we are born to do this cultures have done this for 10 
20, 30,000 years, as long as, you know, we've been recording these things. We found proof of, of free diving cultures 15,000 years ago. Um, so our bodies are equipped with something called the mammalian dive reflex. This is also known as something called the master switch of life. Now, dolphins have this, whales have it, seals have it, humans have it too. And these switches, these reflexes, allow us to withstand the incredible pressures of a deep dive. Our bodies completely transform. It's the most profound transformation that we can naturally experience. Right, the, the second you uh, put your face in the water, your heart rate's gonna lower about 25%. Blood's gonna start rushing from your extremities into your core. Um, your brain waves are gonna soften. Uh, you're going to enter a meditative state. It's no coincidence that, you know, people, uh, when they're all hyped up and stressed out, uh, splash a little cold water on their face. That's the mammalian dive reflex. It's a, it spurs a physical transformation. It's not just an empty ritual. Now, the deeper we dive into the water, these reflexes become more profound. More of them start triggering. Eventually, uh, as the lungs shrink up, I know a lot of you were like, oh, I don't want my lungs to shrink up to half or a third. You don't really feel this happening because all of these triggers start um, flipping inside of your body. Your core, uh, areas of your core engorge with blood. Your lungs, the alveoli in your lungs begin engorging with blood to counteract those pressures. Now, these reflexes only happen when we dive deep and every single human has them. So we are literally born to do this. Our bodies are built to do this. The deeper we go, again, the more uh, reflexes are triggered. I could go on and on and on about this. Uh, one thing I will uh, cap it off, and I do go on about this in the book, but uh, freedivers do not get the bends. Uh, the human body in its natural state is the only way someone can ascend from, say, 300 feet in a minute. You do that with scuba, your lungs explode and you die. But when you freedive, the body in its natural state, again, knows how to deal with the exchange of gases in the lungs and knows how to purge these things from the body. And it allows you, a free diver can ascend as fast as he or she wants. There's no limit on that. Are you and kidding me? I I'm... am not kidding you. This is real stuff. That's wow. you, you can go on YouTube and watch free divers, you know, ascending from 300 feet down. Just going straight up. There's no decompression stop. That's only because of uh, of scuba. We humans started getting the bends because we stopped freediving. We started breathing compressed air. That's how the bends came about. Wow. Freedivers don't get the bends. I honestly just assumed the same thing with scuba. And maybe it's because I was trained to scuba and obviously not freedive, but you stop. And that's what I was thinking. How do these guys, if you're gasping for air... How did they go like, well, okay, I'll stop here while my heart feels like it's going to explode. That makes a lot more sense. No, no, it would, it would drive. I mean, that's something that would just drive people batty. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen. So what's so great about, you know, with scuba diving, you're down a hundred feet. You're like, if things start going wrong, you can't just go to the exactly. surface. You've got to do a deco stop. But, but with free diving, you don't, you're on the seafloor at 40 feet down you think, wow, uh, maybe I should take a breath now. Uh, I'm getting a little uncomfortable. You kick your fins as fast as you can. You're up at the surface within a few seconds and you're breathing. And that's the only way to do it. You can't do that with any other contraption. Like all of these illnesses we got from underwater exploration, oxygen toxicity, uh, nitrogen narcosis, some freedivers get that very deeply, but you know, the bends, all these things are because of the technology. The human body has known how to do this stuff for millions and millions of years. And these guys are just now rediscovering it. So, so cool. So the next thing is, how do how does anybody train to do this? And I don't mean to, to do it competitively. Okay, we're not going, I don't want to get sued or I don't even know if that's possible. But for people who just say they, they dove straight down and maybe they, they didn't make it back up. But for people like yourself who are interested in it to go sit on the floor 40 feet down, which I want to do that. How do I do it? Well, what a lot of people see of freediving, actually the only thing people see of freediving is the dangers of it. And uh, this is so frustrating to so many people who do it responsibly. When people think of freediving, they keep, think of competitive divers. In November, uh, a guy from Brooklyn died competitive diving. 
And that made world headlines. People are just saying, oh, free diamond. It's like base jumping. It's some extreme sport. <laughs> People do this to, you know, get jacked up. It's for adrenaline rush. You cannot free dive if you're amped up. You can't do it for adrenaline. You can only enter the ocean in a meditative, calm state. It's impossible to do it otherwise. If you push yourself like these competitive divers do, you're going to probably get hurt. But if you enter the ocean in peace, you understand your body and its limits, it's going to be fine. So having said that, the best thing to do is to take a course. Uh, there are courses offered by a great group called Performance Freediving International. Another guy, um, Ted Hardy, H-A-R-T-Y. Uh, I did some training with him and I did training with PFI and um, with a bunch of other divers that I was hanging out with. And they all say the same thing. Know your limits, never dive alone, and enter the ocean in peace. Don't push yourself into the ocean. Uh, listen to your body. And if you do that, this is a safe activity. I, I know uh, I'm absolutely positive about this. Uh, you know, just a, a little side note about that. The AMA divers in Japan, they've been diving for 3,000 years. There's no record of them ever blacking out. There's no record of them ever dying beneath the surface. I was with these women. They're 80 years old now. They've been diving their whole life. And they, because they approach the ocean in peace, no one, none of them has ever had an accident or a problem. So it's just, that's something I just try to drill into people's heads over and over. This is not an extreme sport. You want to do that, try base jumping. You want to do free diving, think of it as a meditation, as a yoga practice. So uh, <laughs> now to answer your question, uh, crazy. Take, a, take a course. Uh, you can look some stuff up online. Uh, there's breath hold tables uh, with 30 minutes of instruction. Anyone listening to this podcast can hold his or her breath for two minutes, two to three minutes, easily, easily. I held my breath three minutes the first time I tried. The second time I held my breath four minutes underwater. And I'm not special. Anyone can do this. So it's just unlocking these things that your body already knows. It's like, it's mostly going to be a mental game at the beginning. You're, you're going to say, oh, this isn't right. I'm holding my breath for a minute and a half. Your body knows what it's doing. Hmm. You have to trust that. Um, so check out some stuff online, but again, the best way of getting the safety and that whole experience is to take a course. Very cool. Very cool. And we will link to some of those courses because I'm going to be checking them out. So okay. I love that. Now let's move on to a little bit different portion of the book. It's structured in a way where you, cause you really, aside from the free diving, it's all about our connection to the ocean, the vast nature of the ocean, the life forms that are there, and then at different depths, kind of what happens. And we obviously don't have much more time and we don't have time to go through all of it. That's why there's a book. But I was hoping you could point out maybe a few interesting things that captivated you regarding the organisms and the life you met while researching this. Yeah, again, the the attraction for me for free diving was not the competition. That's a small sliver of the book. That was my entry into it because that's what happened. And my own free diving is another small sliver of it. The the vast majority is of these discoveries that that these free diving researchers and these other renegade scientists are discovering about the ocean. Um, one of those things is uh, the click communication shared by dolphins and whales. Again, when you free dive with these animals, they approach you. And so they, these researchers have been allowed access that very few people have ever gotten before. And, um, you know, scientists have found that dolphins not only have first names, but they have last names as well. And they speak these to you when uh, you're diving with them because they think you're part of the environment and they want to talk to you. Um, uh, sperm whales are the loudest animals on earth. They have eight inch long teeth. Um, they can click you to death. Their uh, clicks are so powerful that they stun giant squids with them. Uh, wait, but, wait, 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 wait. I got to stop there. I got to how, what, <laughs> what, what did you just say? I know I'm cruising through this pretty quickly. Uh, but, uh, I'll, I'll just focus on the sperm whale stuff. Okay, cool. Big, big fan of them. Uh, sperm whales are the loudest animals on the planet and they're the world's largest predator. They have eight inch long teeth. The majority of their diet is giant squids, which they dive down to around 9,000. Uh, some people think 10,000 feet to hunt giant squids. 
and they're able to emit these clicks from their noses. You know, you know, in the ocean, sure. Uh, this is this is something. Um, uh, it's a dark environment. Uh, so what good are eyes if there's no light to see anything? So animals such as dolphins and whales and sharks have developed extrasensory abilities. I'm not talking about ESP. I'm talking about six senses to see in their environment, to communicate and um, and to navigate. So sharks use something called magnetoreception, which is an attunement to the Earth's magnetic field. Humans have this too. Whales use something called echolocation, which is a form of sonar. They shoot out a click, wait and listen for the echo to return. A whale can see a human from a mile deep. A whale can be a mile underneath you and see you. So humans also can use echolocation. Um, and I met some blind people uh, that learned how to echolocate like whales to see in their environment. Now, specifically, the reason why uh, it's so important to free dive with sperm whales is because these animals could kill you in a second. But for some reason, when you're free diving with them, they approach you in peace and they try to communicate with another form of click that is not used for echolocation. They ah, have clicks, okay. clicks that they use for communication. And these are very different than echolocation clicks. Sperm whales have different dialects. Sperm whales in one area of the ocean are going to click differently from those in another area of the ocean. And they exchange these dialects to learn where the other is from. Now, they send free divers these communication clicks in the water. And these clicks are so powerful, you, you feel it in your chest. The water starts vibrating. And, uh, and again, this sounds like some new age dream, but uh, no, this, I mean... is, this is science. I experienced it. I was there. We've got 20 hours of video proving it. Wow. Um, and it's just, you know, we're looking for intelligent life outside of Earth. Well, we need to go like, you know, a few miles off the coast and a sperm whale has a brain six times the size of ours. It has neocortex, spindle cells, everything the human brain has, but in a large, a much larger quantity. Uh, these are extremely intelligent animals uh, and there's just no research being done uh, with them. And that's what these free diving scientists are trying to do, trying to learn about them, trying to learn about their language. And that's mostly uh, what the latter half of the book is about. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew, you know, I knew about the echolocation a little bit. I saw like a 60 minutes about how blind people are using it. It's very cool. But I didn't know the thing. That's how they hunt or what prevents them from using the stun click on a human and just eating you? I'd imagine you have as much protein or whatever they're looking for as a giant squid. That's a, it's a great question. And, uh, it just, uh, you can draw your own conclusions. Yeah. Uh, my mind personally, from having interacted with these animals, they could so easily eat you. They have just like 50 enormous teeth sure. and they're usually wrestling huge, uh, very violent giant squids, but they don't, they come right up to you. They're very docile, very playful. A lot of researchers think their echolocation is uh, so strong, and th this is fact, that it penetrates through flesh. So a sperm whale is not going to only be able to see what you look on the outside with echolocation. It's going to be able to see what's on your insides. So a lot of researchers believe they're able to see us, see that we're different, uh, see that possibly we have very large brains mm. and we have lungs just like them. When they echolocate each other, what do they see? That they have very large brains and they have lungs, that they're mammals. Um, and they become very curious. Uh, you know, when these things are approaching you from underneath you uh, and they're clicking and the water feels like it's vibrating, uh, you're thinking like, what the hell am I doing here? Like my, my work life <laughs> exactly. just got really, really, really weird. But you have to, just as in free diving, you have to trust that moment. You have to go in and approach the animals with peace. And there is this enormous paradigm shift. They're learning as much about us as we are about them. If you think about how sperm whales view the world, what have they seen in the past 60 years? You know, they've seen boats hunting them. They've seen uh, people harpooning them. They've been polluted. Their uh, whole environment has been polluted by with various sonar sounds. So they don't really know anything about us. They know less about us than, than we know about them. So they're very curious, and they're studying us, and, and they're probably exchanging information about us. Maybe they're, hopefully they're saying, well, 
not all these guys are jerks, you know, not all these guys are out here to kill us. Uh, some of them uh, seem pretty peaceful and curious. And um, so the more you dive with them, the more I think, um, you know, they, they can hopefully get a better understanding of us as, as we will with them. So it's a mutual thing. Well, that is very informative. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk. I know it took up a little more time than it's expected, but it's just one of those things where I'm sure people are thinking the same thing. Oh, let's talk longer. We could go on forever. But you do a great job of explaining all these things in the book. So it's the next best place, uh, if not having this conversation. So, James, I really want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for doing this research and writing it in a way that's not scientific, because I'm sure there is information out there, but it'd be boring as hell and I wouldn't want to read it. And I wanted to see where else our listeners could go to to read more of what you do, to follow along, to see what's next, all that good stuff. Uh, they can go to my site, MrJamesNestor.com. I don't prefer to be called Mr., but James <laughs> Nestor was taken by some sculptor in Michigan or something. So uh, MrJamesNestor.com or on that, that thing called Facebook, uh, which I update uh, various events, uh, book tours stuff, uh, what I'm working on, so on and so forth, is, is available through, through both of those. Um, or if people are really curious and you have a specific question, um, you know, and if I'm around, you can email me. I've been getting some really awesome emails from people uh, and trying to help them out with looking at free diving in a different way. And, and that's something I'm a big advocate of. Fantastic. Well, again, James, thank you so much. Congrats on the book. I'm sure it will continue to garner some great reviews and be successful. And I look forward to what's next. Great. Thank you. And thanks to all those patient listeners who uh, <laughs> listened far longer than they thought they might. Yeah, but they loved it. All right, James. Thanks again. Have a great day. Right. Thank you. You too. All righty. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with James Nestor. Again, you probably noticed that I was not there. Yeah, John, it seemed like you weren't even there for the interview. I wasn't. I was in New York doing training for my new job. So I actually had a blast listening to this interview as I edited it. It's so much fun to be a listener once yeah, in a while yeah. and just hear you talk to these these amazing guests. So that was a great time. Again, guys, thank you so much for helping us become number one in education. It's such a great feeling to be able to tell family and friends, hey, I'm, I'm accomplished on iTunes. Yeah, really. Well, I don't, I don't know how accomplished <laughs> that makes us, but it is cool. And the book, James's book is incredible. So as I mentioned, we're giving a few away. He sent us copies. I read it in one sitting. It's fascinating. That's how nonfiction books are supposed to read. You actually, a page turner of nonfiction. What are the chances? What are the chances? And don't forget, guys, sign up for the newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com. It's your chance to win a Kindle Fire HDX or four $25 Amazon gift cards. Now that the show's over, don't forget to sign up for your free account with Personal Capital right now. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To sign up for a free account, go to personalcapital.com slash smartpeople. Again, go to personalcapital.com slash smart people. Personal, Personal capital, capital. Less fees, more G's. G's. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we just did that. Yeah.